Any hopes that I'd merely been suffering from performance anxiety were dashed after my talk was over. I still felt wretched as I lurched back to the main hall for the final meeting of delegates before the conference finished. Richard texted me to say that he'd join me in an hour or so so we could go on to Cubao Station and catch our bus to Sagada. Outside the hall, menacing thoughts swirled around my head while my heart thumped faster and my stomach grew more bloated. The Philippines is finally taking its toll on me, I kept saying to myself. I couldn't rid my mind of everything sad and painful I'd seen or heard over the last nine years. My near car accidents, my watching car accidents at the Davao CCTV Center, the artist Kublai Milan's colleague shot by NPA snipers, Kian de los Santos and all those other luckless quarries of Duterte. Duterte cackling, Duterte joking about rape, Duterte giving the middle finger, Duterte putting my name on a hit list for being a white, imperialist son of a whore who despises him and by extension his country. The fear, the suffering, the carnage, the death. Excuse me, I croaked to one of the conference organizers. Is there a doctor on campus? I feel really, really ill. Twenty minutes later, I was inside a minibus-sized ambulance trapped in the traffic on Aurora Boulevard. The driver's decision to switch on the flashing lights didn't aid our progress. In Manila, everyone wants to get in front of everyone else, said the young female paramedic while she listened to my heart with a stethoscope. I don't want to die, I squeaked. Please tell me I'm not going to die. Don't worry, sir, it's not serious. The ambulance pulled up outside World City Medical Center. I was led into the outpatient's ward where a clerk asked me to fill out some forms. Could we establish whether I'm dying first and then I can do the forms later? I asked. I was shown to a bed and within half an hour, I had undergone blood, diabetes, blood pressure, and electrocardiogram tests. A doctor, also young looking, came later to tell me that I was in good physical health. Why is my heart still beating like a speeded up record? I demanded. Sir, there's nothing we can see that is wrong with your heart. May I ask, sir, are you feeling anxious? Yes, very. The doctor produced a pill. Please take this for calm. I did as bidden and texted Richard to instead come to the hospital. The pill kicked in as he arrived. I hugged him. It's good to see you, mate. I then drew the curtains and wept like a foundling. That's an excerpt from Tom Sykes' book, the Realm of the Punisher Travels in Duterte's Philippines. Tom Sykes is a writer, editor, and University of Portsmouth senior lecturer. He's written books from satire to short fiction, reportage to travel narrative. He's also the author of the forthcoming Imagining Manila, Literature, Empire, and Orientalism. He's also written plenty of books about travel in Malaysia and the Ivory Coast. But his essays, travel writings are the best, conjuring up Paul Thoreau, Philip Caputo, and Alex Garland when he's not holding back and firing at full clip. It also seems like Tom doesn't have a particular beat and is comfy almost everywhere, discussing diverse subjects with a wide array of people. From squatters and activists, rioters like F. Shunil Jose and Charleston Ong, a politician like Teddy Casino, plus he also went to Davao to try and secure an interview with President Duterte. Realm of the Punisher's title would suggest that he was going to cut the strong man a new one and instead, readers may be very surprised that it's really mostly about Tom's travels and interviews and ruminations 
about being a Western stranger in a strange land. On this episode of The Dead Drop, Tom talks about his fascination for the Philippines and why he stayed for almost a decade in the archipelago. to ask you brother about you know you don't seem to have a particular beat at the very least in the realm of the punisher you seem to be comfortable everywhere like because i report a lot on subcultures but you seem to be able to discuss diverse stuff with a wide array of people like you've talked to squatters and activists you've talked to fshin for christ's sake and charles Ong. so that yeah. just those two is like for me uh, uh like wow he talked to like very different levels of writers right there like a politician like Teddy Casino, and you also went to Davao to try to interview even the Tepte. Like, how do you do that? I mean, how do you not have those kinds of borders? Or like, for yourself, did you did you think it would be difficult to change gears? It's a really good question. I mean, I think for me, it's about. Um, I think every writer has their sort of interests and their their sort of um, uh, things that they want to find out, things that drive them. And I suppose, yeah, you're right. There is, it's a very diverse range of people that I talk to in places that I went to. But I suppose then there might be these kind of underlying themes or interests that, that, that kind of inform all of that. And I suppose that, you know, there's a certain, you know, I'm very interested in politics and I'm a, I'm a lefty, I'm a socialist. So that ne- ne- necessarily... Um, drew me to activism and also, you know, someone like Efshinil Jose is, um, you know, someone who's unashamedly quite sort of polemical in his fiction. If you think of like, um, you know, we talk about his novel um, Dusk, is it, where it's about, you know, a group of um, sort of uh, Filipinos around the time of the revolution, just for the revolution, and they, one of them murders a priest, you know, one of these Spanish priests who's being incredibly oppressive in their community, and they have to leave their um, their home. They have to, and, and then they go into the countryside and they kind of wander through the countryside, which becomes a sort of metaphor for, almost like a kind of romantic metaphor for, you know, Philippine independence or Philippine anti-colonialism, um, and that's kind of what we talked about. So, that, so there are these political connections. I'm also interested in kind of, like we were saying, stereotypes and myths. Um, so, you know, and and how they come about and how they can be challenged, how they can be interrogated. I think that's quite an, quite important now, or perhaps it's more important now in this sort of age of fake news and i don't like that term i just like propaganda i'm a bit old-fashioned i think propaganda covers it and you think you're right though like uh fake news is just modern propaganda right i think so yeah and i think it's more i'm more comfortable with that because i think fake news tends to be applied in quite a narrow way um to duterte um you know and i i've been on the receiving end of um some of his, uh, you know, trolls, you know, as I think people who have been critical of him, a lot of people have been. <laughs> right, yes, yeah. Um, in fact, I got threatened with, um, uh, the, I, so I did a, an interview with a British-based activist, Filipino activist, uh, who's, you know, who's been sort of campaigning against Duterte for a magazine here. And um, I, a, a British-based ba- British guy who, and again, we're going back into these cliches, who married a Filipino from Davao and therefore is a supporter of Duterte, threatened the magazine with libel, you know. (laughs) 
which has never happened to me before. I hope it doesn't happen again. He didn't have a leg to stand on because it all checked out factually and everything. But I, that's almost where that as a badge of pride, you know, it's, you don't get threatened with libel every day, and, you know, as a journalist or whatever. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I know that this is obviously a very hot topic in, in the Philippines. Oh, yeah. with, like, um, I'm sure you've, you've watched the uh, recent documentary, Thousand Cuts. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I know with um, Rappler and the sort of shit they've gone through. Oh, sorry, I swore. I don't know if I'm supposed to swear. Why am I allowed to swear? But, um, you know, so, <laughs> yeah, you can do anything. Yeah. No um, uh, no regulations. Yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I've done it. Tell me about it. Right. Like, you, after you watched it and then, of course, ABS-CBN has just shut down like uh, we can yeah. go. Yeah, I mean, this is really worrying, authoritarianism, basically, isn't it? And it was, and I think, um, you know, the sad thing for me is having spoken to a lot of activists in, in the Philippines who have been working so hard on all these issues, you know, press freedom, human rights, and they feel that, you know, that, that and I think I, I quote that towards the end of the book, um, you know, when I try to do a little bit of a summary of what's you know, I mean, the book came out two years ago, so a lot of things have happened since then. But I, you know, a lot of them were saying it, it, it's a tragedy that all this kind of good work we've done seems to be being rolled back now, you know. So, yeah, um, but, you know, there is solidarity. I mean, my my National Union of Journalists, the union I belong to here, is definitely, um, you know, has stood up for um, uh, Rappler, and you know made it very clear that you know wherever you are in the world if you're a writer then you, you should be free from being oppressed in that way so yeah um for me actually i'd like to compare you to your writing really reminds me of paul thiro and philip capito and alex garland brother so <laughs> um what is it about like because you also have other travel books malaysia and ivory coast right I've written about, yeah, I wrote a, a kind of more of a kind of uh, a commercial type guidebook, which I did just because it was, um, which is not the most interesting writing job to do, but I, I did it because it, it, it was, a, you know, three months of funded travel and I could do, I could do other stories along the way about sort of politics and culture that interested me more. But, but yeah, and I've written about other, I've written about Malaysia, I've written about other parts of Asia um, as well. Um, but the Philippines, I find the most interesting for, for a number of reasons. Because uh, it seems like you have a special place for the Philippines. Would you say you're a traveler who also just happens to be a writer and a journalist or is it the other way around? Um, I think probably the other way around that I think I start with, you know, every, every writer needs a subject. And, um, for me, just traveling to places and getting some kind of lived experience of a, of a very different place, a very different situation has just always kind of inspired me and made, got me interested along with doing more, you know, there's a, for me, there's always been this. I've always enjoyed doing both the kind of reportage stuff, actually going to places, talking to people, visiting sites and things. But then at the same time, doing that kind of homework, you know, reading about the place. Um, and I think with a with a with travel writing, you can combine the sort of 
the first-hand stuff with the with the more kind of secondary research. So you you can marry those and still be pleasured. Like you know, it'll still be a fun time for you. Yeah, and also that prepares you quite well because you know I you know to go back to someone like Efshin or Jose or I, I interview um, Kublai Milian. Sorry, I'm pronounced probably pronouncing all these names really badly because I'm a I'm a foreigner. Um, you know, this guy who's an artist in Davao who who does these extraordinary, extraordinarily brave guy who goes out into the middle of, like, um, you know, uh, NPA territory and erects these extraordinary works of public art um, that have a kind of message of peace to them, you know, while being shot at. You know, he's actually had colleagues and comrades who have been shot by snipers, you know, while they've been erecting these extraordinary pieces of art. And they are, you know, really beautiful to look at and very, very interesting. So, so yeah, I made sure, you know, you make sure that you, you do the reading beforehand. Um, you know, you try and learn as much as you can about people. So that, so the two things kind of complement each other, I suppose, the sort of more academic type of research and the more sort of hands-on reporting. So. All right. Well, the title of the book, Realm of the Punisher, of course, when I first started to shop it around here, trying to get you a distribution was like, is it is he like just from the title alone people would ask is he is this a political book like trying to put down Duterte like no but of course it's easy to see why they would mistake it as that like and they may be surprised to say it's all mostly about your travels and interviews reflections and stuff like that like going on so um has your viewpoint now kind of um shifted in terms of like how it's paralleled uh, Duterte's rise to power, how it's paralleled not only Trump, but uh, in, over there in your side of the pond, like with the conservatives and Boris? Yeah. Um, isn't it weird? Yeah. <laughs> it is. There's something going on, isn't there, around the world? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a global um, phenomenon. Even when I went to Myanmar, it's like Aung Suu Kyi has suddenly become like a fascist yeah. figure. Like, what the hell? Yeah, I, I, I agree with, with that analysis to a point, but um, I think where, where I might differ from, and I, if, if I may reference something I've written more recently, which is a chapter in my, my new book, Imagining Manila, which is about... Yeah, sure, okay, sorry, maybe I'm jumping the gun here. We can... But I just I thought of an example that, that to sort of answer your question um, from, from that book, which is where I've basically tried to look at sort of... British and American reporting, and some of the um, some books that have come out about Duterte, and I think one of the, for me, one of my criticisms of that stuff is that it it tends to um, look at the rise of Duterte in a, in a sort of in a perhaps a, like not a very nuanced way. You know, it doesn't put it into this wider context. And, I, and that wider context is actually provided really well by a lot of your commentators. I mean, Walden Bellow, um, who wrote the introduction, and I mean, he's a legend. I mean, he came and spoke at, uh, we were very lucky, he was in Britain, he came and spoke at my, you know, the university where I teach, um, which was a real, real honor and a real pleasure to see him because he's a, you know, I think he's a very important critic and all this. And what he talks about, you know, and is very persuasive to me is how, you know, Duterte comes, you know, th there are reasons why we have, you know, someone like Duterte rises. And and for him, it dates back in part, this isn't the whole story, but a big part of the story is that, you know, you had this period of, um, 
you know, they call them structural adjustment programs, you know, where the internet. Yeah, yeah, exactly, which is the real. <laughs> well, you know, back in the, um, I think it started under Marcos in the 70s, um, these international uh, financial institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, which, as you know, are Western run, they're run for the benefit of the West, the rich nations, right? You know, so, they, so um, you know, Bello writes about how, um, you know, they came in to supposedly try to help the Philippines with issues like poverty and so on, but in fact imposed all these um, policies, which meant that, you know, it, it banned, you know, trade unions were banned. Um, there was an attempt to try to privatize things. Austerity was imposed. Um, all these sort of harmful policies. And Bellow's argument is that actually, you know, that there was this kind of alienation or this discontent that was sown at that time, um, which explains why, you know, years down the line, you you start to see this kind of people wanting, you know, these problems are still there, or these problems have got worse, of poverty and violence, or whatever you want to talk about. And so people turn to the, the big man, the strong man, you know, because he says, I'm going to sort everything out. Very similar in the US, where it's used decades of what you'd call sort of neoliberal policy, where both parties don't seem to be able to kind of, you know, they're offering people all the pleasures of the market. You know, you can, you know, vote for us and, you know, you can you can buy your own home and you can get a good job. And that's all falling apart in the West. You know, I'm speaking, you know, in, in what's supposed to be the rich world is, is no longer, you know. Yeah. So my critique of a lot of this Western coverage of Duterte is that they don't talk about that. You know, they don't talk because it, but because it makes the West look bad. You know, you won't get someone writing for the kind of legacy media in, in the UK, for example, who wants to admit that there's that the that the rest of the world or the West, ha, you know, has anything to do with what's going on with Duterte and the problem. They, they feel like a more isolationist point of view would uh, benefit yeah. the West instead of like, you know, directly linking it to like, like maybe not as bad as how the US treated Iran, but... No, we don't have anything to do with that. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, going further back, I mean, the Philippines was an American colony and you've got, um, you know, uh, again, I think quite persuasive arguments from uh, as a, a historian called Joseph Scalise. I think he's who's a sort of, I think, American Filipino um, historian who talks about how a lot of the problems today um, with, you know, governance and with corruption and stuff actually have their origins in you know the American colonial state, you know. Um, and if you look at that time, and again, this is something I look at imagining, there was huge amounts of graft and corruption, you know, going on in that time. And so, you, yeah, I, th I just think you have to take that kind of long historical view to really understand someone like Duterte, whereas that's not always being done, you know, in the West. You have to Filipinos to give that kind of analysis, I would say. I mean, it's it, I mean, it's always easier to give somebody the simplistic view and the uh, the cut and dried version. Like, yeah. I I really agree about the non-nuanced coverage sometimes because um, uh, I don't know if you've watched this new documentary about the uh, EJ case called Aswang. I'll send you. I haven't seen that one. No, good. no. That's good though. No. Because it's yeah, it's a very magic realist point of view because it takes the uh, it it doesn't care about whether you've read the news or not whether you've, it's it's mostly for the Filipinos who've lived through EJKs who know Kian who know the uh, the highlights of the uh, 
the drug war killing stuff like that who've lived through it who've seen it on their streets it takes a very emotional kind of point of view whereas something like PBS's uh, on the president's orders is a usual kind of documentary with talking heads and stuff like that so it's it's more informative rather than cathartic and uh, what I like about the swung is it's it's more cathartic rather than informative like it, it doesn't really care if you know or not about the highlights it assumes you do so it's this is more uh, I hope you get to see it man because it's 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 incredible because for somebody yeah. like you who who, know, who knows the uh, the story it'll be like oh my god yes this is how it felt like there, there were some kind of monsters talking the streets like of course you know what an aswang is that's one being the kind of liver thing, like, like that. Well, what I really wanted to talk about is for you to bring me back. For for speaking of the long view, and for the complete noob who who doesn't know, can you take us back to 2010? Was it 2010? Who were when you were first here? Mm. Yeah. Why were you here, and uh, what was the assignment all about? Was it for Quill? Uh, what is Quill? Um, that's a really interesting question. I always find it hard to answer these questions when people ask you, how did you get to travel somewhere or, or start writing about a particular place? Because it's, it's so much to do, so much, so kind of accidental and so much to do with luck. Um, so, uh, well, I suppose, um, I'd always been interested in, uh, the Philippines and, uh, sort of Southeast Asia, um, I guess we have to, if it's not going too far back, it that that sort of starts maybe with um, my grandfather. He used to tell me these stories about visiting Manila in the just before World War Two. He was in the the Royal Navy, the British Navy, you know, so um, in in Asia, and he ended up sort of fighting the Japanese in the sort of Pacific theatre of, of, of the war. And he he had this very kind of um, romantic sort of colonialist idea of you know which which must have been very enjoyable for a kind of uh, a Westerner coming there and sitting in the, on the balcony of a colonial bar with, uh, you know, drinking the tandoi or, or whatever, you know. Um, yeah, I, oh, I, I miss, I miss tandoi. It's a great, it's a great rum. Yeah. Um, smoking, uh, you know, uh, cigars, which I believe at that point, um, you know, Philippine tobacco was, more respected and more enjoyed than than Havana tobacco and Havana cigars, you know. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, um, and that obviously, you know, sort of comes out of um, the the kind of development of all these kind of cash crops in the nineteenth century. You know, when it became, you know, sugar and tobacco and all that sort. Of stuff. So I had this picture in my head from my grandfather, and then when I went to school and college, I studied, um, you know, uh, studied sort of Asia and and Southeast Asia and learned started to make that picture a bit more nuanced and a bit more refined, I suppose, and learned about, you know, political history, the sort of anti-colonial movements, the war, um, Marcos, that kind of thing. Um, fast forward a little bit to uh, the sort of mid-2000s when I did what a lot of, um, you know, dumb young Western kids do. You can't afford to do it now because the <laughs> so much I don't think because the pound, the British pound, isn't so strong against our other currencies. But then you could travel quite cheaply around Southeast Asia, backpacking. You know that's where the Alex Garland uh, Beach book sort of you know very much informed all that. And um, but I didn't make it to the Philippines that time, and I was I don't know I just ran out of money or something. There's a, there's something about that peninsula where Westerners will go to Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos. You know down in 
And there's something about just having to go. It's different, different if you're in the US, I guess, because you come the other way around. You come from the east, but Europeans would come west. And something, I don't know, psychological or, in my case, it was probably more financial. It's just like that last leg of flying over to Manila, which isn't that far. Yeah, it's kind of silly, really, looking back. I should have just, you know. But so I, I always had this kind of, you know, I came back from Asia having it changed my life and it really and I'd done lots of good writing from it and I'd started to sort of publish bits of travel writing bits of journalism off the back of that experience and I um thought well I'd, I'd like to spend longer I'd like to live back there at some point and I'd like to go to the Philippines at some point because I've been thinking about this and I've been you know it's been you know most of my life I've been sort of reading about it and and so on and I decided to um do i suppose the opposite of would it be like the opposite of outsourcing where i was <laughs> i could get a kind of western rate western fees for the kind of writing i was doing but they would go further if i moved to to the philippines you know um and by this point i'd started working for this magazine in malaysia called quill and they said why don't you do a kind of column about being the kind of englishman in manila so i did that and i had some other things going on yeah yeah and and then i you know moved to Quezon city and and really you know another really important part of the story is meeting you guys you know yourself joel toledo uh, waps rafael san diego you know, writers, you know, really, I mean, Ride and Roll was this real place where I just lucked out. I happened to live a couple of streets away and I went into a bar, you know, and it's like, wow, there's the, all these, all the, the kind of literati of Manila are all here. And that was a huge education for me. And, it, and you know, I'm still, uh, you know, a lot of those people were very helpful, you know, Joel and people like that in, uh, you know, a lot of their insights made it into the book um, and they set up interviews for me and they you know i learned a lot from those people and i'll always be very grateful to them i mean joel's in the book because some of our <laughs> because you know as you know he's he loves british music he knows more about british music than i do particularly obscure stuff from the 80s you know when i was very from youtube and like i didn't know they were not you know famous in the uk like who like what i, I wanted to get across the idea of you know like as you say stranger in a strange land but mm. sometimes you know that that works both ways because I was learning new things and getting used. But then people like Joel and some other people <laughs> who turn up later in the book were asking me about, well, what, what what is it about Britain? What is Great Britain? How does that work? Where you've got these little countries within Great Britain? What's the that's mad? And I, I had to agree with them. Yeah, it is mad. It's only a tiny island <laughs> or two islands, and we've passed. You know, and again, that's all to do with history and to do with the vicissitudes of, of how. Uh, well, that was an education for me, man, because I didn't know it uh, would like piss off some people when you call them like, "Oh, you're English," like, or "You're British," like, no, don't don't call them that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was also people asking me about cricket. You know, these these guys, these. Um, I still don't understand that game, uh, the very least. But you know, it would be always interesting for somebody to explain it. Pass off an hour or two. <laughs> Again, it makes you think about your own assumptions, you know, about the things that are natural to you because yeah, you were yeah, brought for me, up. How, how was that learning kind of learning experience? Like all of a sudden you, you see your own country in a new light, in a, in a new kind of point of view, right? I think it's really important. I think it's absolutely essential. I really do. Because I think, the, you know, for all kinds of reasons, I think it's just it makes you a, sort of hopefully a better person and a more thoughtful, empathetic person. And I, I hope it 
is a way of stopping prejudice. You know, I think a lot more people should, you know, certainly a lot of people I can think of in my country that could, you know, who voted for people like Boris Johnson could do with a bit of exposure and having their own, because I think if you don't experience other things, I mean, you don't have to do that through travel. We have, you know, we have the media, we have the the internet and, you know, but if you don't expose yourself to difference, then you become, I think, quite complacent and possibly a bit kind of quite arrogant about who you are and where you come from. And actually having some guy drunkenly um, kind of interrogate me about the rules of cricket made me think, yeah, I like cricket, but it is a bit mad. You know, it is kind of crazy. It's very, very complicated. And I say to the guy that he said, how long does it last? And I said, well, five days sometimes. <laughs> and then he said, do you do 24 hours? And, you know, do you go 24 hours? It's like day one to day five. And that, that suddenly sounded almost like a kind of Monty Python sketch or something kind of absurd. <laughs> and I was thinking, that's actually brilliant. That's a brilliant comic, comic sort of idea. And then I had to say to him, oh, no, we, you know, they stop in the evening and then they, over, they start in the morning. But they break it up with tea you stop for lunch and and I, I guess to a basketball coach a Filipino basketball coach who's used to what is it 80 yeah so there's little things like that little cultural details that you know I think be, become well they seem small but then they they become more serious because you yeah it just makes you think think a bit more kind of um Knew about things. It's. I mean, looking back at it now, that now that you've mentioned it, those those days at Magnet, Ride and Roll, those, oh, I, right. it really just seems like you lucked out in terms of being at at the right place in the right time because those places have closed and uh, the art scene. I mean, the literature we've seen was never the same again. Like, I look back on those days, like one. I think it was Magnet or Ride and Roll where I did my first gig with one band. And it never got repeated because we disbanded stuff like that. But I also think that there was a confluence of energies in terms of you being there and the other writers and artists being there that never got recaptured. But then again, man, um, I really feel like sometimes it takes a foreigner, like you said, to to somehow put your own uh, milieu in context. Like, especially someone like you who's writing about us and and the only other author. The only other author I think who's uh, who's ever captured something very incisive about us is Alex Garland. So like mm. one of the most incisive capsule takes I think of the, the the macro situation of the Philippines is when somebody says to you, Sir Tom, please just write good things about Davao. And for me, it sums up the fear and the hope and what many feel when somebody's confronted them about their own culture and like, you want to hide the warts and all suddenly like... Mm. What was it about Filipino culture or and society that when you were here you found most frustrating? That that that's I mean that's some really interesting um, sort of stuff you're talking about there. Yeah, that kind of feeling of uh, I'm, I'm trying to think really. I think anything that I might have thought was initially weird, I I thought well I'm going to try and understand that and I'm going to ask questions about that and I'm probably going to piss people off. Yeah, yeah, because I think in a way, like, you know, why do people, I think there are generally, wherever you go in the world, there are generally, generally there are certain kind of um, common values, aren't there? I mean, it's generally agreed that, you know, you shouldn't go around murdering people or, you know, there, there are certain kind of universal values, right? Obviously, circumstances change and, and things get 
complicated. And then, of course, you do have violence and you have wars and that. And that can happen anywhere, frankly. You know, I mean, the, the history of my country is extremely violent, you know. Um, you know, uh, you don't necessarily have to get into that. But, you know, um, so I think for me, I mean, one thing I do remember was um, initially being a bit frustrated about, but then I changed my mind and it helped me to sort of reflect on, on you know, where I come from. Not that I'm, not that I've ever been very wedded to where I come from. Actually, I'm, I've not, you know, I'm not, um, you know, patriotism is a difficult thing. I think when you come from, um, you know, a country that has such a long history of being pretty nasty to other countries. So I, I don't, yeah, and I think it's it's quite, and it's something that I try to get at in that, you know, in in the book with you know discussions with Joel and those, those other guys. It's like, what do we actually mean by a nation? I mean, what it's quite an abstract thing, isn't it? But at the same time, I don't have any problem you know i think probably filipinos are you know that a lot of liberal and leftist filipinos would say that they're proud nationalists and that and that's fine i've never seen that that necessarily means prejudice towards other people or looking down on on other people i think that's okay unfortunately in my country it generally goes hand in hand with some of the and in america too generally speaking uh you know not in all cases but it will go hand in hand with with a certain kind of notion that our culture is superior with these problematic sort of racisms that we're seeing with Trump and Johnson and so on and so forth. But one thing, yeah, I was going to mention was the way that it's not cool at all in the Philippines to lose your temper in public or to display. And I come from a, a country that has got a reputation for being polite and understated. But actually, I think is we're quite an angry and combative nation. It's quite well. I think even in it's quite normal to see people arguing in the streets. It is, but maybe it depends. Maybe it just depends in what context you're in. But you know, um, you know, uh, you'd be much more likely just to walk down a street around here and see see a raging argument between a you know. Or you would never see that in the Philippines. And um, uh, unless people are coming to blows, there would be no argument, right? Like, yeah. It's like yeah. it's not like there's a middle ground where people are just arguing. There's like coming to blows or just mildly yeah. arguing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, initially, I found that sort of like, you know. What do I, I was thinking, surely there are all sorts of problems if people don't express their feelings in public because, you know, yeah, and there's got to be red lines. You can't just keep smiling and nodding as someone is, you know, attacking you or something. But then, I, but then you know, I, you know, you, 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 again, you do your research, you ask people about it, you have some conversations about it and you learn that actually, you know, that's just a, a trait that, that is no more or less rational than, you know what we do here or what people do elsewhere and, and i suppose you just get a bit more of a kind of balanced view of it and you see that there are probably advantages and disadvantages to that approach and then you know same with you know the way people are in the you know uk or us or whatever um so yeah i think just you know being curious and seeking to sort of understand things rather than judging or or passing judgment i think is you know you, you've sort of got to like you know just attitude to take when you're you're trying to understand a kind of because sometimes it felt like you were trying to explain things to a friend who's british in back home and but just kind of um fascinated by the difference or just curious about what do those blokes 
why do those blokes do what they do over there and and but most of the time it just feels like you're explaining things to yourself yeah maybe actually yeah that's a good point maybe that's what a lot of writing is is sort of like coming to terms with your own thoughts and your own feelings you know that sometimes i don't know what i think about something or feel about something until i write about it because you're forced to have a view and you've got to make it interesting and you've got to I mean, you know this yourself as a, an accomplished uh, uh, science fiction fancy writer. You know, wh whatever kind of writing you're doing, it's like you've got to, you know, you're structuring thoughts, aren't you? And you're structuring ideas and, and you're presenting it in a way that, first of all, you have to be happy with. And then hopefully <laughs> other people will. Yeah. So it, it is very autobiographical in that sense in, in the where I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to understand things for myself and make things make sense for me. and you know, having had this experience, which I guess is unusual, you know, being, you know, moving from one culture to another and spending, you know, I'm not, I don't make any great um, claims for myself, but I, I I think I I tapped into certain aspects of the Philippines that maybe other Westerners haven't. And I, and I knew that because I'd read other Westerners. I knew that, well, there were maybe gaps here, there, here or there, and maybe I can sort of be the one to try and fill those. And, you know. Well, you definitely did fill it for me because I, like, Definitely, I was bored by Patterson. Like, don't tell Patterson, but you know. <laughs> what one did you? So you've you've read his stuff, James yeah, Hamilton. Stuff. The ghosts, yeah. the ghosts is like eh, okay, probably like more reportage than anything else. But what I really found most interesting in your stuff is as you went along and you gained more understanding, it seemed like your viewpoint changed on certain idiosyncrasies and cultural quirks. It seemed like you were getting used to it. It seemed like you were explaining things to yourself in a different way, not just being Filipinized, but actually marrying your two points of view as a, as a, as 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 a Westerner. And now it seemed like as because you were enmeshed in Filipino culture for so long, things seemed normal to you, right? Like the magic realism that we live in here, the milieu of it seemed more normal to you as the book went along. And the, I I would assume you were not writing it in all in one sitting in one year. You're writing it like right. in tranches, right? That's really interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I guess unconsciously that's the way you see a journey. And I, I'm reminded of, you know, from what you just said, uh, comment that, um, you know, your, your great fellow writer, Butch Dalisai, once told me, which is, you know, travel writing is about the journey within and the journey without. So it's about, you know, the, that, that kind of narrative arc should be, of course, there has to be um, interesting things happening in the world you know events and scenes that that readers can enjoy and and hopefully get something out of but so there's a sort of physical journey or there's things going on in the world that that the the narrator or the writer is involved in but then there's also this personal journey and there's you know which hopefully is about gaining greater understanding or empathy for the subject so yeah, that that's what I always, you know, that's what I look for as a as a fan. I think as well of, of, of travel writing, um, and I guess that's what I was sort of trying to aim for, um, consciously in some ways. But then that aspect of it was unconscious. That's interesting that you picked up on that. But but it makes sense because that's what happened to me. You know, I did learn. I did become more com comfortable. You know, after that third, fourth, fifth arrival in Manila, I was no longer. I knew how to deal with those guys coming up to me. Saying oh, only seven thousand pesos, and I take like, no, 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 no. I've done this before. <laughs> well, this is the first word, exact first phrase I was taught by 
friend who rides the bus. Yeah. I think I said this to a taxi driver once, and he was so upset. I, I, I he looked like he was going to cry, and I thought, and I felt so. And now, so we're in the new normal. Your president says it every other <laughs> day. Well, well, he when he deigns to hold a fucking press con in the middle of the at midnight or something, right? How? What do you think of that, man? Now that you you've seen like you've been here for so long, and like you went back in 2018, right? That was a hard. How much yeah. was the uh, culture shock in terms of just the social political atmosphere? Uh, how hard did it hit you? Yeah, it was. I so I was here in I was there in 2016 as well. Was I there in 20? Perhaps even in 2017 as well, because I was madly trying to get the. Uh, I was simultaneously trying to finish the PhD that this was all part of, and by that point, I'd got a publisher. So you know, I, I was trying to travel as much as I could before before handing that stuff in. Um, so I do remember when I came when Duterte had just been elected, and for me, the real shock was because um, I'd been in Davao a few years before, a couple of years before trying to get an interview and uh, he blew me out. I mean, I don't blame him because, you know, who am I? So he probably had better things to do, you know, some But some it's a hack. good thing he blew you out because, you know, otherwise you'd be on uh, earlier on the radar of the trolls, man. Yeah, exactly. This is true, yeah. And I'm not sure how that would have gone because I'd learned so much about how, you know, his, the way his kind of style and I think probably being fundamentally a coward, I probably wouldn't have kind of, you know, stood up to him as in the, but then if I had stood up to him, then maybe I would have disappeared and have out, God knows, but anyway. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that, in 2016, um, it, it was, yeah, I, I remember for me, the real shock was reading, starting to read in the papers, incidents around the Philippines, not just, we all knew this happened in Davao, the, 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 the death squads and so on. But hearing that it had spread out, it kind of metastasized across the Philippines. Was I remember, I think, being on a plane on an internal flight, reading that and thinking, he means it. He actually means it. And this is going to get... Unusually for a politician, he kept a promise. Although, whether we want some promises you don't want. <laughs> yeah, some. So, what <laughs> if it, like, so 2016, like, did the shock just keep piling on when you came back on 2018 or just were you 2018 was really difficult really difficult um because i was uh personally for me because i a close friend of mine had just died a couple of months before and and i was grieving i didn't know it at the time but i was grieving for him you know um and i yeah a part of me thought if i can just get out of my situation here and you know away from that i can focus on the job and i'll stop you know, and it'll, it'll it'll be good for me. You know, but um, it kind of like a ghost. It sort of followed me, and so I was still. Um, the way it manifested itself was just terrible anxiety for that whole two or three weeks I was in the Philippines. Um, that wasn't helped by the fact that um, just before I arrived, you had the case of I think a European member of Parliament, an Italian member of Parliament, was kicked out of the Philippines because because he criticised the, the, the drug war. And then you had, was it Patricia Fox, the Australian nun, who, who did they did they actually, in the end, I think they did get, kick her out, didn't they? Um, because she had... And I was thinking, okay, now 
I'm not necessarily safe, even though I'm a foreigner here, because I thought, well, they're only, you know, I'm, I'm unlikely to get stuck in Tondo and get a shabu, right? You know, I'm, I, like, I'm safe from that. But actually, this is this is a bit scary now, because if I, you know, if, I, if I'm not careful here, um, you know, I'd already published a couple of things in, in back home that were critical of Duterte. Maybe I'm on his radar. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe I'm such an unknown that he wouldn't, you know, there are bigger, you know. Yeah, yeah, the fear was there, definitely. And then other things happened where I um, met a woman who was on a, uh, in Sagado. I went north to try to understand the kind of indigenous rights movement there. And the woman I spoke to, said i'm on a death list you know i've had a visit from uh from a kind of g-man an agent saying you need to stop she has a radio show up in Zagada, and she's very critical of um well it's not just the duterte administration it, i mean that that's been an issue long you know going for a long time and, and i was like okay so um right uh and she was actually the a woman who was guiding myself and my my friend, my another British friend. I was like, okay, we're with you now for the next two days as we tour Pagada. Uh, what happens if uh, one of the motorbikes turns up and you know there's a one of these drive-by shootings? You know, but there was just this collision of of just difficult shit basically that that happened in 2018. But you know, it it made for I think hopefully a good last chapter. <laughs> it was a very good last chapter, man. But yeah. They do Thank like because they do like going after community journalists a lot because they're off the limelight mostly and um, small communities. Even if they make a big request, they they don't make a big splash in Imperial Manila. So I, I'm just glad you came out of it like you know in one piece and none of the uh, riding in tandem assassins got you. <laughs> Absolutely, and you know this is where you have to be, um, you know, so grateful. That, I mean, I, I mentioned my. You know how grateful I am earlier to to you know friends Filipino friends who who you know got me good information set up interviews and helped me, but you know that sort of moral support having knowing that there are people looking out for you and people who would help you if you're in a, if you got into a, a jam is really important you know and I and I'll, I'll never forget that you know for as long as I live um, and I think that's something I, I don't want to get too essentialist and say well Filipino all Filipinos are like this but. Certainly, the Filipinos I know are, you know, very caring and very empathetic in that way. So I, you know, and that, and and you know, nothing that I've done really, that book or anything else, really would have been possible without that support. So, I, you know, can you tell me about how imagining Manila will be different on a on a lighter note? I guess less less bloody note. It's dangerous. Sitting in a library, funnily enough, or in an archive, reading other guys who have written about the Philippines is. Um, Somewhat less dangerous, I guess, than uh, than uh, going to you know some of the places where the EJKs happen and stuff. Um, and that's how we came out of the of the PhD um, because I, I, I think it's similar in uh, in the Philippines, whereby you know if you uh, do sort of graduate studies in creative writing, you know PhD or an MA or something, you've got to do the obviously the creative element. And then you've got to sort of like um, critically like make it a more academic work. Yeah, sort of situate what you're doing in a context of you've got to talk about other writers that have influenced you. And so I had to do that for my PhD. It's, you know, same same kind of regs here. But I realised that I'd read sort of quite a lot of other Western writers 
who had specifically written about Manila because that's the, you know, for, for, for various obvious reasons, that's the, the sort of focus of a lot, like the Garland, the Tesseract, you know, the Garland book that you mentioned, and many, many other books going back to like the early 18th century, which was the sort of earliest. I'm looking at British and American. Obviously, there are Spanish. So, yeah, Imagining Manila is just, it's like a piece of literary criticism, really. It's looking at a load of Western writers since... Uh, well, British and American mostly, writers in English who have written about Manila. Um, the earliest one I can find is Daniel Defoe, who people will know from Robinson Crusoe. He wrote this kind of fictionalised um, travel narrative called New Void Around the World. And it's there's a very brief moment where these characters go to Spanish Manila in 1725, I think. And he called on we go from Daniel Defoe, this great um, canonised literary hero to uh, to not such a literary hero dan brown uh ladies and gentlemen you know the guy who did uh in no it's again sorry angels and demons uh da vinci code it's it's actually the one that i'm aware of the one that i covered was inferno which is set yeah right and it, this caused a huge outrage your man saying this is a disgraceful because he just and it was it was horrible it was totally one-sided and, and ludicrous you know he just there's this female doctor character wanders through Manila and it, first of all it's like they describe it as the gates of hell itself you know <laughs> I mean that's not my experience I mean it, it, again you have to it, it goes back to what we're saying about traveling somewhere and seeing for yourself and hopefully thereby disproving these kind of stereotypes you know and i wonder whether dan brown ever went to manila if he did he probably just stayed in the manila hotel did the book signing and pissed off you know sort of thing like he's so one of the chapters in my book i look at the way that western writers have um you know really kind of inaccurately very often and and sort of sensationally portrayed manila as a kind of hell and so this goes this back is the, uh, to orientalism you're talking about Absolutely. Orientalism is a really key idea that I've taken and tried to apply to the Philippine context. You know, obviously this dates back to sort of Edward Said and he was looking more at kind of European constructions of the Middle East, whereas obviously the tr the coordinates are different, but, you know, th th there's a lot of similarities in the way that kind of, you know, these writers that I'm looking at from, yeah, really sort of 18th century Victorian writers, in the 20th century, during the American era, you get lots of American travel writers who are sort of interested in, in you know, who go come to Manila and, and are writing about it. And a lot of them are really hung up on, you know, and, and there's a big part of this is this big sort of, um, uh, frankly, sort of anti-Catholic attitude to our Protestant countries, Britain and America. Um, there's this notion that the Spanish have mismanaged the Philippines and they've held you back into the Middle Ages because they're because they're nasty Catholics, you know, really bigoted stuff. But and but what I thought was interesting was that you've got not only that that kind of Orientalism that's aimed at the indigenous, the Malay Filipinos, or what we want to call them, but also the Spanish, who you would think for Westerners, for for you know their fellow white people, why why beat up on them? Why critique them? So there's an interesting little what I thought was a kind of nuance there that. You know that they're, if anything, a lot of these books are kind of more anti-Spanish than they are anti-Filipino. I find that in that classic kind of Foucauldian way. You know, it's a discourse because it serves an agenda of power. The reason why they're 
having a go at the Spanish is because they think that they would manage, you know, Britain or America would manage, would, would, would be, yeah, it would be a more efficient boss. And it's totally self-interested, you know, they're just, it's an excuse to go in and, and obviously the Americans did eventually um, usurp the Spanish there. Britain, I think, I don't want to say we, because that's, I don't identify with that. Yeah. That's the danger. The royal we, exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but, you know, in 17, was it 1760s, the British Empire briefly occupied Manila, right, um, during the, would it have been one of the Spanish wars? Because the Spanish were other, they, they saw the Spanish were weak, so they came in and occupied it. So there was always that kind of these designs, you know, from earlier on Britain. And then when America became, you know, got independent and became a world power, you know, that they were obviously keen to to become an empire and they went to Cuba, they went to the Philippines and they spread out into Latin America and we're still living with that uh, today, I guess. It sounds like something I would love to read, just like the stuff I've already read. So thank you so much, Tom. Any, like, could you invite the listeners to um, where they can buy your books and where and when is uh, Imagining Manila coming out? Just... Yeah, sure. Well, thank you, Carl. I mean, I really appreciate um, you inviting me, and, I, and it's been really nice to um, uh, talk about, especially as Imagining Manila, I've only just really handed it in, so it's nice to be able to kind of go over those ideas and themes with someone. I haven't had the chance to do that. And um, and also just nice to catch up with you after all these years. We should do it more often, and I, I feel, um, yeah, it's been too long. You know. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, so Rob the Punisher is... It's it's unfortunately not. I think you could find it on Amazon, um, but I don't know the situation with Amazon. When I was when I last was talking, it's probably when I was living in Quezon City. I was talking about Amazon with some of you guys there, and they said it's not a good idea because you. I don't know. It doesn't work too well. I don't know whether that's improved. No. Okay. Um, there's an ebook. You can you can get a Kindle ebook which I guess you can get anywhere in the world through Amazon. Um, unfortunately, I mean, you, and again, you, you did, you were, um, it's very kind of you to try and um, hook me up with a Filipino publisher because the greatest honor for me would be to, to have, you know, an edition published for the Philippines. I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe we don't have to go that far, but <laughs> nearly. No, I don't um, Yeah. So imagining that it will be with Bloomsbury, which is the bigger publisher. This is so, Problem with Realm Punisher, it's just a, a British publisher, so there's, I guess it's not so easy. To, they need to co-publish with other countries so that's available there, but or more easily available. Whereas Bloomsbury is obviously a big international academic publisher, so I'm hoping that would be um, that comes out in April next year. So hopefully that, if you know, people in the Philippines again, the the, the you know the greatest honour for me is when I had some good reviews from Filipinos for Realm Punisher, and that means much more to me than you know reviews in you know in the US or the UK or Europe. And I'd be, you know, uh, I'd feel the same way about imagining that if Filipinos liked it and I'd think, okay, my job, I've done an all right job here, you know. So you have a site, right? Where can they find your works if they want to check some of it out? Yeah, so it's um, tomgsykes.co.uk, which is not the greatest looking blog in the world, but I try to update it fairly often, and if you want to, you know, read more of my stuff or read some of my stuff, you can find, you can access it. 
I'm, I'm on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter, um, and I'm, uh, I used to be, but I just I'm one of these people that. Um, I, well, this is like a topic for a whole other discussion, but I, um, I'm just finding all sorts of just getting more and more angry and depressed by social media. So I don't use it as much for various reasons anymore. But I'm on Facebook. I'm friends with you there, and I, you know, I'm very pleased to have a you know be friends with a lot of Filipinos there. So look me up there if you want. I'm always happy to talk about these sorts of issues with anyone, really. So. So if you have any inquiries, just go to Tom's website or just find him on Facebook. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, Carl. Salamat, boss. Okay. <laughs>